Keith is, uh, Keith is not here this morning, so I am going to have the pleasure of introducing my good friend, Dr. Elizabeth Enlow. Um, before I do that, two things. The CME code, because Keith didn't send me a slide, is on Liz's um, slide, XA45, if you need to text that in for CME. Um, and a plug, again, uh, our interview season kicks off in its fullest force on Friday. Um, we have our first round of applicants for the residency program. Uh, so if you have the availability or interest in helping us interview, I know Kelly Rose has sent many an email, but um, check your emails and your availability. We'd love to include you in that process. Um, so today I am delighted to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Enlow, who is one of my co-fellows. Uh, so we spent a lot of, I think, blood, sweat, and tears together for three years. Um, she is now an assistant professor at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital um, in pediatrics. She trained at the University of Arizona Medical School, did her residency training at Stanford, and then was with me at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for fellowship. And her research interests have really always lay in the social determinants of health throughout uh, fellowship and now into her academic career. So. Um, I'm excited to hear what she has to share with us, specifically looking at our adverse birth outcomes. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Emma. Thanks, Carolyn. Can you guys hear me in the back? Microphone good? Okay, great. All right, CME code's going away. Oh, this is my computer. No, I think it's coming back on. There we go. All right, well, thank you guys so much for inviting me to speak today. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, today in this talk, uh, we're going to cover the following objectives. First, uh, we're going to identify the causes of infant mortality as well as the disparities in this outcome. Then look at the influence of social determinants of health on extreme prematurity and infant mortality. And last, I'm going to finish up by talking about some of our efforts in Cincinnati, our community-based approach and agenda to reduce infant mortality. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Um, so I want to start out by sharing a quote that captures how I view healthcare and our role as physicians and healthcare providers. And I want to thank my colleague, Dr. Andy Beck at Cincinnati for sharing, me the, sharing these slides with me. Uh, he recently presented at one of our neonatology conferences uh, in Chicago, and I felt that these quotes were really meaningful and important and really highlighted a lot of the, uh, the things we're going to be talking about today in the talk. Um, so Virchow, who's come up a lot, uh, he once said that medicine as a social science, as a science of human beings, has the obligation to point out problems and to attempt their theoretical solution. The physicians are the natural attorneys of the poor, and social problems fall to a large extent within their jurisdiction. And, you know, I really truly feel like for me that this is how I see medicine and that we need to confront social alongside medical issues to address the root causes of health inequity. Okay, one second. There we go. So with that quote in mind, I wanted to give you a little bit about my background because it certainly influenced um, my perspective. 
so I'm currently a neonatologist in Cincinnati, but it's been a really interesting journey to get here. Um, I traveled all around the country for my training and employment. Um, so I grew up in the Southwest in Phoenix. I did my undergrad there and then moved to even further Southern Arizona to Tucson to do my medical school training. And as you can see, we're right here there on the border with Mexico. Uh, and so mainly our impoverished populations we had there were Mexican immigrants, a lot of first-generation Mexican immigrants, uh, also a lot of Native Americans um, on various reservations throughout the state. Um, then I went to California, to the Bay Area, to do my residency, uh, where the poverty was a little different. Um, I know when people think of the Bay Area, they don't exactly think of poverty. Um, I saw plenty of Ferraris on my way into work every day. But there are very deep pockets of poverty, and this has been substantially worsened by the explosion in housing prices. Uh, so generally there, the impoverished communities tend to also be Central American immigrant communities um, from Mexico, but also other places in Central America, as well as Vietnamese, tends to be the other pocket of poverty we see in Bay Area. Then um, I moved to Philadelphia, um, where I met Dr. O'Day, as she mentioned, um, and uh, it was very, very different from the poverty that I had experienced previously. So, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to advance that. You know, the poverty there, I've just never seen the degree of structural poverty and just the complete destruction of neighborhoods, and you just would never imagine that this is... We're in the wealthiest country in the world when you saw some parts of Philadelphia. It was really shocking. Um, and it just, you know, even, again, I've been in other impoverished areas and never quite seen um, the degree of destruction and also segregation that I saw there. So there, um, at least at, at CHOP, the impoverished populations we took care of were um, African-American communities, but also we had uh, several immigrant communities, but from very various places, not just um, Central American immigrants, um, African immigrants, people who came from the Middle East for care. So it was a very diverse population in that sense. Um, but the main population was African-American community that we took care of. Um, and then I accepted a position a year after a fellowship at Cincinnati Children's where I was really drawn to how invested my division of neonatology was in addressing social determinants of health. Um, and I think that cord just went off a little bit. That's okay. We'll fix it. Um, and I think it's very unique that neonatology is so invested in understanding the issues with social determinants and hopefully... What's Rachel come out and help me? Sorry, trying to fix a faulty computer connection. Um, but the, you know, it, it's very um, when you're a subspecialist, uh, it's sometimes difficult to see the population health and the issues with social inequalities. And I really felt drawn to Cincinnati Children's because of this. And I'm going to be spending some of my time talking about what we're doing. Okay. Yeah. Always unplug it. That's always the best thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and at this point in my career, uh, what I've spent most of my time doing research on is looking at various aspects of non-medical, including social determinants of health and infant outcomes. Um, I've done research looking at disparities in infant mortality, the impact of health literacy on the outcomes of very preterm infants, uh, continuity of care, healthcare utilization, and the transition from the NICU to home using a family-centered approach. It, I think it's coming. 
Yay. I'm never, I'm not going to touch it anymore. Okay. Uh, yeah, here. Sorry, guys. Um, that's like the, and I don't have my notes, but that's okay. Um, we just don't have the presenter view, like the presenter view shut up. Um, you would have to set it up. No, it was working and then it stopped. Okay. So, yeah, it went completely went out. So, okay. You want to get back to presenter view? Yeah. Okay, go ahead, hit escape. Okay. I, I'm not sure exactly. And go back into slideshow view. Sorry, guys. Okay. All right, we're good. Thank you. If you want to see my notes, I guess it's fine, but. <laughs> Um, so my talk today is not devoted to my current research project, but I always like to brag about my research advisory council, which is comprised of parents of very preterm infants who have been meeting for the last year, and they have been active members of my research team from the very beginning of my project, which is exploring how parents' needs and priorities evolve over the course of the transition from NICU to home. And I also bring it up because not just in my research, but in our efforts in Cincinnati at addressing infant mortality, we strongly believe in a participatory action approach, which is where the end users or the families, mothers, infants are really the people that need to be our research partners from the very beginning. And this is a philosophy, um, not just in my research, but in our work in Cradle. So Cradle Cincinnati um, is a group that we have housed within our division of neonatology. It's a collective impact group that coordinates the efforts of various organizations in Cincinnati that are working to improve maternal and child health. Um, collective impact uh, involves partnering with a diverse group of organizations and participants to reach a common goal. And later in this talk, I'm gonna talk about some of the specific efforts we're doing in Cincinnati uh, to combat infant mortality. Before I get into that, I want to transition to looking at the epidemiology of infant mortality. And while I think most of the people in this room understand that infant mortality is an important topic, um, I, I think it's really important to point out that it's truly a national emergency. So why is infant mortality so important? Well, obviously saving babies' lives is, is very important in and of itself. But it's also an indicator of how well a nation takes care of its citizens and how healthy a nation is. Um, this is a graph of infant mortality by country, and it lists what they would call comparable countries, so countries with a similar uh, standard of life and development. Um, and as you can see here, our um, infant mortality is staggeringly high compared to other countries. The comparable country average is 3.4 infant deaths per 1,000 live births, um, and that's how infant mortality is going to be reported throughout this talk, um, in the number per 1,000 live births. Um, and as you can see here, the U.S. is at 5.8, which is substantially higher than other similar nations. There's also substantial regional variability, and you can see here that the darker blue states have the highest infant mortality, which is concentrated in the South and the Midwest, including Ohio, where I currently practice. Um, and I noticed while I was putting together this talk that you guys here in New Hampshire are in the lightest states, so you guys have the best infant mortality. Um, and I hope that this talk will describe why this is, why our infant mortality is so much higher. So looking at Ohio-specific data by county, um, darker red is worst. This is 
cumulative data from 2005 to 2014, and here we are in Hamilton County, and you can see we're, we're one of the darkest states, so we have the worst infant mortality. Our infant mortality exceeded 10 deaths per 1,000 live births, which, again, the national average is around six. Um, and you can also see where we're located. Uh, I actually didn't really know where Cincinnati was until, like, after I moved there. Um, <laughs> but this is Kentucky, so, like, we're basically in Kentucky, and this is Indiana. Um, Indiana also with one of the worst infant mortality rates. And, um, oh yeah, this is the one I need to control from. The good news is, in the last five years, things are getting better in Hamilton County, where, I, where we're at. So this is 2012 to 2016. And you can see we're no longer dark red, which is great. Um, which an improvement is great. And we haven't seen as much of the changes in the other counties, so our decrease in infant mortality has exceeded other counties in our state that have similarly high infant mortality rates. Okay, so what is causing infant mortality? We have to understand this to understand how we're going to fix it. Um, and I find when I give this lecture to residents that a lot of people don't know this information, so I think it's important to point out. So by far, the top two causes of infant mortality are congenital malformations, which is number one, and short gestation, so prematurity, which is number two. The other top five reasons you can see are there's many fewer contributions to the infant mortality rate, and that includes SIDS, maternal complications that aren't categorized under prematurity, and unintentional injury. But again, these are much, many fewer deaths compared to what we see with congenital malformations and prematurity. It's very different in Hamilton County. And you saw the, the last numbers. Congenital malformations was number one, kind of shortly followed by prematurity. In Hamilton County, 60% of our deaths are from preterm birth. So two in three our babies are dying because of prematurity. And birth defects, you can see, is this, the second largest piece of the pie is pales. It's by far lower as number two. So 20% of our deaths are from congenital malformations. And then sleep-related deaths is our number three. And then if you break down deaths from prematurity by how premature the infant was, you can see that over half of our babies are dying due to extreme prematurity, which is birth less than 28 weeks. And in fact, the deaths from prematurity from the babies born between 28 and 36 weeks is only 5% of the deaths from, from prematurity. So our babies are dying in Hamilton County because of our extremely high extreme, extreme preterm birth rate. So another one of my favorite quotes, again, borrowed from Andy Beck from his recent presentation, um, but one that um, I've always appreciated, is by Martin Luther King Jr., who said, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in the healthcare system is the most shocking and inhumane. And I cannot agree more, and I, you know, I think many in this room agree that this is one of the main reasons you became a doctor, so that we become advocates for our patients, I think especially in pediatrics. Um, and so I think too, with all the headaches in medicine and the long hours and the burnout we face, that sometimes this is what I have to keep in mind so that I can keep going and stay motivated. And I want to talk a little bit more about racial disparities in infant mortality next. And so with a lot of talk um, about Black Lives Matter and the deaths of African Americans, I think it's really important that we're also seeing that we're also losing a lot of African American babies to infant mortality. So this is data looking at Hamilton County and the dark blue bar and the U.S. Um, infant mortality rate in the light blue bar and broken down by race and ethnicity. 
So you can see here that in our non-Hispanic black infants in Hamilton County are three times more likely to die before their first birthday compared to non-Hispanic white babies in Hamilton County. And what's even more disturbing is that our disparity, our racial disparity in infant mortality is even higher than the national average. So nationally, black babies, it's, it's still a terrible statistic. Nationally, black babies are twice as likely to die before their first birthday, but they're three times more likely to die in Hamilton County. I also want to point out that our Hamilton County non-Hispanic white infant mortality rate essentially mirrors the national rate. So our white babies are not dying at higher rates. It's the number of African-American babies and their disparity in infant mortality that's leading to our excess infant mortality. And a lot of people say, you know, what, you know, what is going on with babies of Latino or Hispanic descent? And they actually, and there's tons of data that reflects this, they have similar infant mortality rates and preterm birth rates to white babies. Um, and we see that too in Hamilton County and nationally. And they do not have, ex so they're not accounting for any excess infant mortality. I want to break it down next by gestational age. Um, let's see if this works. So this is California data looking at preterm birth rates by race. So the black bar here is the white preterm birth rate to white mothers. The light gray bar in the middle is to black women. And the medium gray bar is to Mexican women giving birth in the US. And so what you can see here is if you just ignore all this here, just look here, <laughs> at, at the cumulative preterm birth rate, just all preterm births, they, they cut it off at 24 weeks, but 24 to 36 weeks, you see that black women have approximately one and a half times higher rate of preterm birth. However, when you start looking at categories of prematurity, late preterm, it's about the similar risk ratio, about one and a half times higher. But when you look at more moderately preterm infants, black women are twice as likely to have a moderately preterm birth, three times as likely to have a very preterm birth, and in this data, four times as likely to have an extreme preterm birth. And this is borne out, so this is California data this chart is from, but CDC data shows that black women are three times as likely to have extreme preterm birth compared to white women. So a lot of the question is, okay, so if, if extreme prematurity is driving the infant mortality, and the racial, is the racial disparity there just because more um, black babies are born extremely preterm, or do they receive unequal care in the NICU, or is it happening after discharge? Um, and so lots of studies have looked at that. Um, and for those of you um, who've rotated through the NICU, have probably know and have heard us talk about that once the babies are born, black extremely preterm infants have the same or better survival compared to white extremely preterm infants. And they often have less complications, such as lower rates of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So they're, they're not dying at higher rates because they're receiving unequal care in the NICU or they're sicker than a white baby is in the NICU. That's not the case, and if anything, it's the reverse. Um, unfortunately, there is some data that shows that even after controlling for confounders that Black extremely preterm infants after discharge die at one and a half times the rate of white babies, uh, which is disturbing. But essentially, the excess um, infant mortality and the racial disparity in infant mortality that comes from extreme preterm birth is because of just the number of babies born extremely preterm, and they're at higher risk for mortality just from being born premature.
And one study felt, um, one study was able to demonstrate that the increased number of extreme preterm births accounts for two-thirds of the racial disparity in infant mortality. So the, the, by far, the major driver of the racial disparity in infant mortality is their higher number of extreme preterm births. So <laughs> why um, is always the question. So what's causing the racial disparity in infant mortality? Is it genetic? Is it individual behaviors or their community-level factors? Um, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about some of these possibilities. And whenever I give this lecture to our NICU residents, I ask them to come up with a list. And we always come up with, they always have really interesting thoughts. Um, so I'm hoping everyone's kind of thinking in their mind about this. Um, before I go on, a point I want to emphasize that I will emphasize more than once is that even after we control for all of our measurable confounders, that this disparity in infant mortality persists. So you don't just put education in your model and the disparity goes away. And we'll talk about uh, some of those, some of that data. This schematic is from a paper uh, my fellowship mentor and I um, wrote when I was a fellow. And we were reviewing the racial disparities in adverse birth outcomes. And we came up with this schematic to talk about, uh, you know, in a big picture sense, some of, the some of the mechanisms by which race and ethnicity were affecting uh, perinatal outcomes. So I think... There, everyone would agree there is a direct impact of your minority race and, and ethnicity on adverse outcomes. So certainly there could be some genetic reasons for it, but we think at the DNA level, at the gene level, that's probably a minimal contribution. But also there are issues, as we've been learning more and more about, um, with implicit and explicit bias in the healthcare system. Um, Serena Williams uh, has recently put a face on this with the complications that she experienced following the birth of her daughter. Um, and I think she's become a really great advocate to bring attention to maternal mortality as well. But I think most people would, would agree that the link between race and adverse outcomes is likely mediated by a variety of social determinants, which both exist at the individual and community level and certainly have a lot of interaction with one another. So these factors also directly affect adverse perinatal outcomes when you're thinking about access to care, access to timely care, uh, trust of your community and the healthcare system. Those will directly impact your outcomes. But we also think that these social determinants, and we have some evidence to show this, also cause acute stress, which can lead to inflammation and infection and lead to complications such as PPROM and preterm birth. Uh, but they also contribute to chronic stress, which can cause placental insufficiency um, and fetal malnutrition in utero. These are some of the specific determinants that have been studied in the literature that have been linked to adverse perinatal outcomes um, and thought to mediate the link between race and preterm birth. So there's the traditional ones everyone thinks of, right? So is mom poor? Does she have poor education? But going beyond that, we have to look at community level poverty and income. So even if a mom has good education but lives in an impoverished community, that's an independent contribution to her preterm birth rate or risk. Um, also, neighborhood crime and housing damage has been linked to preterm birth, as well as things such as poor air quality, exposure to, exposure to toxins. 
um, but also experience with racism and discrimination, as well as community segregation, has been shown to be linked to adverse birth outcomes. So, um, as I mentioned, we try to control for confounders, and we still have a gap in racial disparity. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the social determinants of health that exist when a woman is pregnant. So traditionally, literature has looked at, is mom poor right now? Um, versus looking at events that happen over the life course. So did the mom grow up in poverty, but is now maybe has had upward mobility? Um, and so we're first going to talk about these are the variables that are measured at the time the woman's pregnant, and then we're going to switch and talk about the life course. So this is a, actually an article. I, I know I've quoted this before. I didn't realize it was from 1992, um, and it looked at college-educated parents, and they still found out that African-American women, women who are college-educated compared to college-educated white women, they still had nearly twice the infant mortality rate. So... You know, it's not just education as a measure, which is a commonly used measure when people are looking at SES. There's been a lot of work on the intersection of poverty and race. So is, it, is there an interaction? Does being um, minority race and being poor interact to also worsen your outcomes? Well, there's interestingly really mixed data on this, and I'll um, talk in a second about what my theory is. But in California, again, I spent some time in California, they, they actually have a really good data set looking at a lot of detailed measures of social determinants. And they found in the lowest SES classes, however you define it, low education, low income, that they actually found there was no racial disparity in preterm birth in the lowest SES groups. But when you were looking at higher SES groups, that's when the racial disparity increased. So college-educated African-American women had much higher uh, preterm birth rates than whites. But when you looked at uh, women with no high school education, black and white women had equal preterm birth rates. Milwaukee, which reminds me more of Cincinnati where I live and Philadelphia where I've lived, they actually found um, something different. They found that there were racial disparities at all levels of SES, and particularly they found that the highest SES African-American women in Milwaukee still had worse infant mortality than the lowest SES white families um, in Milwaukee. And again, there are studies, if you look, there are studies that kind of point either way. One shows that poverty and race do intersect to produce worse outcomes. There's some data out of Australia and their aboriginal population. Um, and then again, you have the California data. And I think it speaks to the fact that this is obviously a very complex subject. And where you live and where you grow up, all poverty is not created equal. Um, you know, and, and I've been able to see that firsthand with all the places that I've lived and, and been to. Um, you know, there's, there's historical context. There's a degree of structural racism. There's a social fabric of the community that I'm sure is all um, interacting to produce these outcomes. And I'm not saying there's no issues with poverty or racism in California. There certainly is. Um, but there just is a different history and a different physical built environment as well. So most people, when they see this data, they just say, you know, you've controlled for all these confounders. You still have variation. There has to be a biologic basis for this. Um, and I think that's a really good question. Um, but epidemiologic data on birth outcomes, as, a, as well as a variety of health issues, has shown that race in this case, is mostly a social construct. 
Um, and the, the expert who has done the most work on this in my area is Jimmy Collins in Chicago. And he has this huge data set that you could never get access to anymore for HIPAA reasons, but it's this linked data set that looks at birth certificate data across the state of Illinois. We have um, information on the mother's uh, country of origin, her mother's country of origin, her mother's neighborhood income level, lots of really rich data. And what he has shown is that African-born women who give birth in the U.S. have the same low birth weight rates as U.S.-born white women. So, again, African-born women, black women, but who are born outside the U.S. and give birth in the U.S., they have similar low birth weight rates, which is not just low birth weight, it's also prematurity, it's an all-encompassing term, to U.S.-born white women. So if genetics was the major cause at the DNA level, we wouldn't be seeing this phenomena. And other data has shown this too. Um, and in fact, the other thing he showed that was really interesting was that foreign-born African, white, and Mexican women giving birth in the U.S. all had better birth outcomes than their U.S.-born counterparts. So um, there's something about living in the U.S. And we talked about earlier that you know Latina women, um, immigrant women, have very good birth outcomes, which they do. But there's other data that I didn't include in this slide, but there's other data showing that as they become more acculturated, as more second and third generation Latina women give birth, their birth outcomes worsen. And again, some of that's from Jimmy Collins' data too. So up to this point, I've discussed sociodemographic, sociodemographic variables of the woman at the time that she's pregnant. But life course theory um, is meant to complement this and discuss where is some of this unmeasured variation that we're seeing. So the life course theory, and I'm sure many of you in this audience are familiar with this, but for those who aren't, um, basically says that events that happen across the lifespan and also in previous generations influence your health outcomes. Uh, there's two major schools of thought that are complementary to each other. Um, one is the early programming theory, which is essentially that there are sensitive developmental time periods at which a trauma or a stress has more of an impact than maybe another time. So when a woman's pregnant, um, there's data showing that racism experienced during pregnancy has a stronger link with adverse birth outcomes than racism experienced in the past but not in pregnancy. Um, it's an example there. Then there's also the cumulative pathway, which has a lot of names to it, wear and tear, weathering, allostatic load. And that's the buildup of chronic stress and you know, adverse childhood experiences, trauma, poverty, um, all accumulate to worsen an outcome as you get older. And I think it's really important to consider this because when we think about what policies or interventions that we're using to address adverse birth outcomes, they're directed towards the pregnant woman, right? Like most of the time, prenatal care, uh, WIC, maybe to, you know, home visiting, to the young mother too. But unfortunately at that point it might be too late and it might be a limited um, philosophy if that's all you're targeting to improve birth outcomes. So to go into a little more detail about early programming, the basic thought in very general terms, there's much more detail to this, is that stress early in the perinatal period alters your hypothalamic pituitary access, which alters your stress reactivity and can also lead to an impaired immune system. Um, the Barker hypothesis is also a famous uh, hypothesis in this setting, and I'm sure, again, many of you are familiar with this, but um, 
The thought is that if you're exposed to a hostile in utero environment and fetal malnutrition, that you develop what's called a thrifty phenotype, um, which puts you in that constant storage mode. And then you're at greater risk as an adult for um, adolescent and adult onset type diseases in the metabolic syndrome um, sphere. And interestingly, what we've seen is that mothers who were themselves born low birth weight, and, and that, again, low birth weight can either be they were SGA or they were born premature, Mothers who are born low birth weight have a twofold higher risk of infant mortality, low birth weight, or pre, uh, premature delivery in their pregnancies. And I really like this um, schematic because it says, when you are pregnant, you are also pregnant with your grandchild. And it's a really good way to think about the birth outcomes. So um, this is absolutely fascinating data, and this slide is a little busy, but I think it's worth going through it because it's, it's shocking and disturbing, or at least I think it should shock or disturb you. Um, so this is data looking, this is evidence for the weathering hypothesis, that cumulative exposure to stress in life influences your birth outcomes. So I'm going to take you through this. So this is CDC vital statistic data from 2015. And this is adjusted um, probability of infant death. And again, um, infant mortality is on um, the y-axis. And maternal age groups are on the x-axis with increasing maternal age. Um, and the first graph is white women. The second is black women. And the third is Mexican women. Again, this is vital statistic data. So um, you know, if, I think a few things probably jump out at you. Um, number one, and even though we've talked about this, I still think in this graphic form it's just alarming to see that black women at every age group have higher rates of infant mortality compared to white or Mexican women at every single age. I think the other thing that should stand out to you is the different shapes of the graphs. So we see that for white and for Mexican women, at the extremes of age, so the adolescents and um, women who are 40 and older, start to have higher rates of infant mortality with it um, bottoming out uh, in the 20s to early 30s. But for black women, that rate just increases with every increase in their age group. And this is felt to be suggestion of evidence of the weathering hypothesis that as black women are just accumulating various stressors, um, adverse, uh, adverse experiences, trauma, discrimination, that their birth outcomes worsen and the risk for infant mortality worsens and likely driven by extreme preterm birth. Okay. So I, like I said, I give a similar talk to our residents who rotate through our NICU. Um, and I find that a lot of them are really depressed at the end. <laughs> and I try to spin it this way. Um, that yes, this is super depressing. So like, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, our country's messed up. I like to think about it another way. Like, I'm actually glad that I'm able to do something more than, like, every single day, right? Like, okay, you should have 140 milliliters per kilo per day of food. And, like, you know, that gets kind of tiring. Uh, and I'm sure when, you know, those of you who are general pediatricians, it, it gets tiring. It's kind of nice to know that there's something else we can do beside the day-to-day the -day things we do in medicine. I actually find it really empowering. And as I know you guys are all known or are aware of, but we have remarkable power as healthcare providers to influence infant outcomes. So I try to put that spin on it and not um, make them as depressed uh, as they are at that moment. So, um, so on that note, I want to transition and talk about what we're doing in Cincinnati to reduce infant mortality.
So as I indicated earlier, things are getting a little better in Hamilton County. We're no longer dark red. We're light red or medium red, I guess now. So what we've seen, um, this looks at the last five years of data um, compared to the previous last five years of data. And we've seen our infant mortality rate drop by 15%. So we had 88 fewer deaths in the last five years than we had in the previous five years. And this is thanks due to the collective efforts of various organizations in Cincinnati working together. Uh, so these are photos of some of the Cradle Cincinnati staff. And the large photo at the bottom is the Cradle Cincinnati Advisory Board, which, as you can see, is made up of a large number of people. Um, very diverse group, not just from a racial ethnic standpoint, but just from all walks of life. These aren't just healthcare providers. These are community organizations. Um, one of them is a city council member. Uh, we've got people in the local faith communities. Um, we have a really diverse coalition that sits on the advisory board. And then this is just a very small picture of the Cradle Cincinnati staff. This is like maybe a third of the size of the staff. Um, I realize we actually don't have any pictures of our staff anywhere. We just have their advisory board. And the day before I left the talk, these were the people who were in the office. And I said, you have to get together for a picture. Um, so th this is Jim Greenberg, my boss, the director of neonatology at Cincinnati Children's, who also heads Cradle Cincinnati. Um, Ryan Adcock uh, is the clean-shaven gentleman um, wearing the tie. He's the director of Cradle Cincinnati. Um, and these, again, these are just a few of our staff members running our various programs in Cradle. I put up the slide, like when I first saw it, I'm like, this is really busy, but I think it really um, captures how collaborative this effort is. So these are all our partners. Um, and what I want to point out here is it's really, truly a diverse group of partners. So we have all the major healthcare systems. So we have, I don't even know, I'm credentialed to all of them. It's a headache. But I think we have six major hospital systems in Cincinnati. Uh, the people working for the Division of Neonatology, we staff about 90% of the, we see 90% of the newborns. Um, so not just the NICU, but uh, newborns as well. Um, and but in addition, we have connections to the OB clinics and all these hospital systems. Um, we also work with the United Way, the Ohio Department of Health and Medicaid, uh, First Ladies for Health, which is a group I'll talk about in a little bit, our home visiting programs. We work with Kroger. Kroger's our grocery store chain. I don't know if that's out here or not, but we, uh, Kroger has worked with us on putting safe sleep information in the diaper and baby food aisles of the grocery store. They've also helped us with data that's helped us link poor nutrition with adverse birth outcomes. Um, and we also work with Desky, which is an internationally known branding and marketing firm. They made the um, Black & Decker tools and love diapers. Like, they did all the branding around those things. But so they take that experience and use it to help us with um, community listening sessions and parent needs assessments and just try to understand how people are living their lives and what their needs are. And so um, we, we've been working with non-traditional partners in that sense to strengthen our, our efforts. And then there's a variety of foundations as well. <coughs> and our philosophy is that no one organization can tackle the issue of infant mortality. Rather, we need partners throughout Hamilton County to come together under a common goal helping our babies live to their first birthday. And this is collective impact. And next, I'm going to talk about some of our specific efforts we're doing. But due to time constraints, I can't talk about all of them. So I just want you to know this is just a subset of what we're doing. And I'm happy to talk more. Um, so 
When Cradle was started, we very deliberately took on a systematic approach to figure out what we were going to try to do. Um, so number one, we looked at, well, what, where can the needle be moved? What's actually preventable when it comes to infant mortality? And then uh, we collected the priorities of a diverse amount of stakeholders in our community to find out what people cared the most about. Because even if we could find a preventable cause, if we didn't have a lot of drive behind it, we knew we wouldn't be able to get far. So now what we're focusing on is what we call the three S's. So spacing, smoking, and sleep. Uh, in Hamilton County, we have a high rate of short um, pregnancy intervals, which is defined as uh, the time of birth to the conception of next pregnancy. And we found that most of the women in our community do not know that there is a link between short pregnancy interval and subsequent preterm birth. Um, I'm doing some work in my current research with my qualitative work with NICU families, trying to find out if they, and by that point they're well past the birth, if they've gotten any information on how spacing affects preterm birth, and we're seeing that not very many of our families are aware of that link, um, which is a little alarming in the families who've already had a preterm birth. So um, we're trying to raise awareness about that, both in the community, but also in the prenatal clinics and then the postpartum visits. Uh, we're there's a huge effort um, undergoing trying to get women to quit smoking during pregnancy and before pregnancy. Uh, and then we also do a ton of safe sleep awareness, and we have quite a few community partners working with us on that. Cradle Connections is our Healthy Start grant. In some places, Healthy Start directly delivers services. Our role is to be able to connect all the organizations because, and I remember this from all the other places I live, one of the frustrating things about this kind of space is that there's all these organizations and no one's talking to each other and they're kind of siloed and efforts aren't coordinated. So Healthy Start is trying to be a way that they know of all of the resources available to pregnant women in need. So um, their efforts have resulted in improvement in tobacco cessation, breastfeeding rates, receiving prenatal care in the first trimester, going to their postpartum visit, having a medical home, and uh, several other outcomes. <coughs> and this is just by knowing the landscape, knowing what's available, knowing what the requirements are for various programs, and that is a full-time job of several people. We also have the Cradle Learning Collaborative, which is essentially um, all of the prenatal clinics in the city, or all the OB providers, are um, as part of this learning collaborative. They meet together every two months in a data-driven approach to share stories, to share data. It's a very QI-driven approach. What's working with tobacco cessation and spacing, what's not? So the current um, priorities uh, include early access to prenatal care. So specifically, there's been some efforts into improving the same-day first prenatal appointments and walk-in first prenatal appointments. We found if we can get them in, we can usually keep them there. Um, there's been a lot of effort, um, not even in the community, but in the birthing hospitals to promote safe sleep. So um, whereas I would say there was various practices, and I, again, I'm credentialed to all the hospitals, and I round on newborns at all the different hospital systems in the city, and everyone is very consistently using safe sleep messaging and practicing safe sleep in our birthing hospitals. Um, again, a lot of information about spacing and its link to preterm birth, smoking cessation, but also connection to social support with the OB clinic serving as that, that point of referral to programs such as home visiting that pregnant women may be um, eligible for. And then this is, I, I love this organization. This is called the First Ladies for Health. They're an, it's a national organization in several cities. And it's a collective of pastor's wives um, who are working towards 
various health efforts, not just related to infant mortality. And I think that we, um, as providers, recognize that advice that comes from family members or trusted community leaders is often even more highly valued than advice that comes from us. And especially when we're dealing with our population where there is rightly so a significant amount of distrust in the healthcare system, rightly so, um, that we, you know, it can't just come from the hospitals or the OB clinics. It has to come from the community. Um, so one of the efforts is in, uh, we have, um, the First Ladies for Health has partnered with us. They do a lot of messaging around safe sleep. Uh, they, they have these um, cribs they set up in their lobbies wherever they're giving out health information. They'll talk about it um, at, at church during the service when they talk about health-related issues. Uh, they've recorded commercials for us and radio ads as well. So um, we've made a lot of progress on infant mortality, and like 15% reduction in five years is a, like is is very good um, amount of progress. But we've seen it stall out in the last two years. So there was a lot of effort undertaken in creating our five-year strategic plan, which we recently released. Um, and this is expanding our vision and hopefully trying to break through the plateau we're seeing right now. Um, so our first goal is to reduce the number of extreme preterm births by 33% by 2023, so in five years, which would bring us to the national average. Our second goal is to eliminate sleep-related deaths by 2023. And our third is promoting what we know about birth defects and leading the way on new scientific discoveries to help better understand congenital anomalies. Um, I'm not going to go into each of these in detail again for time constraints, but I do want to talk about goal number one a little bit. So our first goal is to replicate one neighborhood's success at eliminating extreme preterm birth. So Avondale is a low-income community where Cincinnati Children's resides. Um, they had extremely high preterm birth rates before the start of this program called Start Strong, um, which I'll talk about their bundle of care in a second, but it's essentially a collection of efforts aimed at reducing infant mortality. And before Start Strong began, from 2009 to 2014, they had 19 extremely preterm births just in that neighborhood. Um, but 2015 to 2017, they've had zero. Um, and you can see their infant mortality rate over here was a absolutely appalling 19.5 per thousand over triple the, the national rate and has been cut in half recently in the last few years. So again, Start Strong is a bundle of care. There's no one intervention that's going to improve infant mortality. Um, so essentially, it's early, sustained, high-value, and place-based access to prenatal care. We've also partnered with our School of Design at University of Cincinnati, which is a nationally known school of design, to help improve the appearance of the prenatal clinics at our health centers to make them more appealing and more welcoming. Um, we also, there's been several efforts in various different ways to activate mothers within the community to become champions um, and to spread a lot of our messages. Again, this messaging can't, cannot, cannot be a, a top-down approach. It has to come from people within the community that are activated. And so there's several efforts, uh, family advisory boards, block champions, various things that are happening to activate mothers uh, to spread some of the messaging. Um, and also community-based care is essential. It has to be place-based. It has to be uh, culturally sensitive, and it has to be early. 
And then also there's timely social services referrals and coordination um, and cradle connections as part of that as well. So our other sub-goal, and, and I'm sorry, I should mention, so this happened in Avondale. What our, our, our goal is within step one is to, we're going to be expanding this program to two other neighborhoods that have similarly high extreme preterm birth and infant mortality rates. So we're going to be trying to replicate this program in two more communities. The second is to address implicit bias starting in the prenatal care setting. Uh, the Ohio Pregnancy Assessment Survey, which is our version of PRAMS, which is a, a pregnancy survey given out um, nationally, showed that in Ohio, one in five pregnant women were emotionally upset as a result of how they were treated while pregnant based on race. Um, and we also see disparities in entry into prenatal care. So only three in five African-American women are getting first trimester prenatal care versus three in four white women. Um, and while we're still trying to um, thoughtfully decide how best we're going to do this, we're going to be contracting with an outside company to start with empathy training and its implicit bias training, but hopefully expand that efforts beyond that. But that's at least going to be our first step. I think regardless of what we're doing, our philosophy, and I think what's worked really well for us, is that we know to reduce infant mortality, we have to improve healthcare systems. It has to be done at a system level. We have to listen to our communities, constantly communicate, and grow our knowledge base. Okay, and then I'll, clo I'll close with my last slide I got from Andy Beck. Um, Abraham Jacoby, who was the father of pediatrics, said, it is not enough, however, to work at the individual bedside in the hospital. In the near or dim future, the pediatrician is to sit in and control school boards, health departments, and legislatures. And basically, we need to move beyond the bedside, move outside the four walls of the hospital or the NICU or the clinic to influence health outcomes and improve the health of our kids. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure uh, November 6th is coming up very soon. And I hope we all vote and vote for kids and vote for policies that will protect kids. Um, I just want to thank you all so much for inviting me out here to speak and thank Dr. O'Day and um, Dartmouth and the Division of Neonatology here, as well as my colleagues at Cradle and Cincinnati Children's. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions. Based in Cincinnati, right? mm -hmm. and that you know when you talk to your residents and they get depressed because you look at the data from across the United States. Yeah, if you try to fix all of the United States, yeah, you're you're going to be depressed. Yeah, I mean, um, whereas if you start your own neighborhood, yeah. you can actually make differences. And, yeah, and I think it's relevant to us. I mean, race-based disparities is not a problem we have in New Hampshire uh, right. to the same extent. For, right. appreciate that comment and I, I was I think the same thing I'm like that you know the issues in New Hampshire are not the, the same issues in Cincinnati but the the organizational 
attitude that this is our problem, and these, these disparities are our problem, and we have to be more active in fixing them. Um, probably past the point where a lot of people are comfortable with is really the only way we're going to change, whether it's opioid exposure and, um, or other disparities, rural disparities. It's, it's got to have to... We have to have to change our mind about what our roles and responsibilities are, and I think that's where it starts. And was the state of Ohio on your big slide of partners? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. There is like a million of them. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. So we have um, the Ohio Department of Health. We have the Ohio Department of Medicaid. That's where a lot of our funding comes from. Um, and I, I didn't mention, but we also have something called the Ohio Equity Initiative, which is a state-funded. Um, uh, basically, it provides funds to communities with high infant mortality, including Hamilton County, for various community-based solutions. So it doesn't have to be like, this is what you have to do in one of the more rural counties in Ohio with high infant mortality rates that might have different drivers. It's just providing funding for community-based uh, community solutions that will improve equity in adverse birth outcomes. Kathy. Hi. I'm actually reading something from Dr. White, who's my office mate and the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion here at uh -huh. So she says, thank you so much for your talk. She's watching you live. Oh. A comment and question. Okay. As educators, we are constantly struggling with providing our students and trainees with a realistic view of medicine, understanding <laughs> that what they experience here may not be what they experience later. For example, here in New Hampshire, as Dr. Ringer suggested, we may have the best infant mortality rate, not because we are doing things better, but because we are one of the whitest states in the country, 94% mm -hmm. Caucasian in our community. Educational sessions like this then are imperative for us to fill the gaps and foster discourse for, for our trainees. Her question is one of the challenges to understanding social issues in general is for researchers to understand the lived experience of the study mm -hmm. population. Yeah. So you had a beautiful photo of both your research advisory board and as yeah. well as um, the Cradle Collaborative afterwards. Mm -hmm. Have you tried to ensure that your research advisory committee adequately reflects the population that you serve? That is a fabulous question and one I have spent a significant part of the last two years working on, so thank you for that question. Um, that is one of the, I think, the hardest things um, that every researcher deals with is you want to have the participants active in the research process, but often the participants you're trying to help the most are the people who cannot participate. So we have done a variety of strategies, and again, there's going to be no one-size-fits-all. Um, so we have, for my NICU council, um, I know what I've specifically done is we have uh, we've gone to specific communities where we have parent-activated um, partners who know the community well and we know who's had extreme preterm births to actually go out and personally contact those women that they think, um, you know, are come from a low-income community that can speak to that experience but are also activated and want to participate. Um, the other thing about that, though, is even if you get the diversity there, the only the people who are going to be on a research advisory council are going to be highly activated, pretty savvy people, and that's just the nature of the beast. So then there's a lot of techniques you can do, and um, one of my advisors, Lisa Vaughn, has a lot of experience in this. So um, there's a lot of quick polls you can take where, like, you, you actually, like, go to a community health fair or various things. If, if you want a specific input from people on a specific topic, you go there. You have the, the potentially the more activated mothers on your council go out and seek out the opinions of their um, 
their friends and people they know who've had extreme preterm babies. And then with Cradle, we have, um, we have specifically, we have a parent advisory group that's all from um, one of our low-income neighborhoods, and they, they kind of employ similar techniques. So those who participate in the group are, again, a little more, um, they have a little more support and a little more um, savvy, but they can go out and talk to their neighbors. Like, they know what their cousins think. They know what their, you know, their grandmas have told them. Um, so that's another way that we're able to capture that uh, viewpoint. And then um, everyone does, like everyone, no matter what, has a smartphone now. So there's a lot of like these quick kind of surveys that we'll send out that'll be two questions that we can text to people and everyone texts back and it's really easy to do and it's a good way to get, um, you know, if you just want to do a quick poll of like, do you know how long you should wait before having another baby and is it okay to talk about spacing in the NICU, you know, you can just do a quick um, survey and that's another way we've been trying to get at people and we've had really great success. We Everyone has a smartphone. I mean, and everyone who has a smartphone has a limited texting. It generally tends to be the data that tends to be most of the access issues. So as long as you're not asking to consume a lot of data, that's been another way we've been able to get the, the opinions of a diverse group of people. But it's, it's a very tough and very challenging thing. Definitely acknowledge that. So one quick comment and a question. One, Please. Thank you so much for coming. This is just a wonderful presentation yeah. and just so timely everywhere. Um, we have a Moms in Recovery group, and we have a Moms in Recovery advisory group, and mm -hmm. we have one mom that we pay mm -hmm. and have on salary, and she connects with other people yeah. doing exactly what yeah. you described um, um, there. Um, but my, my question, I guess, is um, we've made some progress in writing grants and getting some grant outside uh -huh. support, but I wonder how you brought all these together, and what was the umbrella or what was the interest yeah. to bring Cradle Cincinnati together. How did you I'm get started? And yeah, fabulous question. One I'm still trying to understand myself. I, I uh, financing of things in the it's it's very complicated. Um, and and I came to Cincinnati after Cradle had been established. But I think in general, um, a lot of it came from the state when they we got a report card of how bad our infant mortality was, um, and you know this was in the you know, late aughts, the 2000s, um, there became a lot of interest. And then the Ohio Equity Initiative was founded, which, which provided a lot of funding for programs. Um, and then we applied for our Healthy Start grant, which we have to, I have a phone call tomorrow to talk about that. We're reapplying for it. That gave the funding. Um, the Ohio Department of Medicaid, our medical director for the Ohio Department of Medicaid, is really invested in this area. I mean, it's, 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 you know, we all know, like, how subjective all these things are. So she's really invested. So they've, they've had a lot of interest in funding this, too. And then we have a bunch of different foundations that have also bridged the gap. So it's a compilation of funding from the state, from our Healthy Start grant, which funds Cradle Connections, um, as well as all the foundations. Um, the Ohio Department of Health adds some, too. Um, so it's, it's really a – I'm glad it's not my job to get all that funding because I wouldn't be very good at it, I don't think, but um, – it's very complicated and a great question. And I also, I pay two of my advisors on my family advisory council, um, to, not full time, but I, I pay them to work for me. And I, I think that's also been a big pull too. So final question in the back. Um, when you were talking about the associations of uh, different characteristics with, with low birth weight. Yeah. You alluded to childhood trauma. Yeah. And I was wondering um, what you can tell us about use of the of ACEs, maternal mm -hmm. ACEs as a marker um, for, for risk. 
Fabulous question, and there is a ton of research ongoing about that. I think I saw something at PAS this year about it. I think we're going to see a lot more published on it. I mean, it certainly would fit with all the things we know about life course theory that um, ACEs as they're getting more, um, I don't want to say popular because that's not the right word, but they're getting more common that we're talking about them, and we're, we're figuring out better how you actually capture those and quantify those, that I think there's going to be a lot of data coming out soon. And I know that that's a big area of research right now and that people are really interested in. All right, so thank you again. Thank you.